truth is in 2020, drug use and abuse has never been higher. Never. From WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, you're listening to Real Fiction. I'm Laurie Messing-McGarry. Australian journalist, author, and filmmaker Anthony Lowenstein has written a new book, revealing how the war on drugs has become the most deadly war in modern times. Lowenstein has reported from the front lines across the world in Central America, Afghanistan, and Western Africa. His last book, Disaster Capitalism, was praised for being a journey into the world of mutated economics and corrupt politics. He was also a co-director of a documentary film about the opioid drug Tramadol. In his new book, Pills, Powder, and Smoke, Lowenstein argues the legalization and regulation of all drugs would be a more realistic and humane approach. My guest today is Anthony Lowenstein, author of Pills, Powder, and Smoke, recently published in the United States by Scribe Press. Joining me from Jerusalem is Anthony Lowenstein. Anthony, lo- welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Well, as I just mentioned, Pills, Powder, and Smoke was recently published in the U.S. But before we talk about this book, can you tell us about how your career in journalism led to covering the international drug trade? And when did you know that a story you were covering would lead to this book? I've been a journalist professionally since 2003. So just after 9-11, I was, I'm Australian. And I started um, doing this in Australia at the time. I was in Sydney. And I guess what really got me I guess, inspired or motivated was a lot to do with politics. So I wasn't directly reporting on 9-11 or the effects afterwards, but I think I very much see my career in the shadow of that event. I guess about five years ago, I sort of thought to myself, you know, I've covered a lot of issues related to human rights and the abuse of those rights. And drugs seemed like, for no particular reason, I hadn't really covered or investigated and felt that was a real gap in my work. And there wasn't one particular event that got me focused or inspired to do this work. But I suppose when I started looking into it, I realized that since 9-11, and this here comes 9-11 connection again, there has been a confluence between the war on terror and the war on drugs. You have selected six countries to feature in the book Pills, Powder and Smoke, and they are Honduras, the West African nation, Guinea-Bissau, the Philippines, the US, Britain, and your native Australia. Now, some, some of these are featured in the international drug trade conversation. Others have not. Can you discuss why you chose these countries to feature in this big book about the international drug trade? I chose those countries for a few reasons. One, because I felt they weren't getting enough attention. Obviously, the US, UK gets a lot of attention. But Honduras, which is obviously a neighbor of the US, a lot of the cocaine, in fact, most of the cocaine going into the US from South America goes via Honduras. Guinea-Bissau and West Africa, um, whereas Honduras is a key transit point for cocaine to the US, West Africa and Guinea-Bissau is a transit point for most of the cocaine going from South America into Europe and the UK. And virtually no one's gone there. So when I was doing research years ago, it's very hard to find many journalists who have been there. And Philippines was sort of an obvious one in a way because... Some listeners will be aware of this, but in the last three and a half years, there's been a new president there, Rodrigo Duterte, who's really unleashed 
an apocalyptic level of violence. It is a war on the poor, as the drug wars always are. The US was necessary because the US is the centre of these policies and they often radiate around the world. And there has been a slight shift in debate in the US in the last five or ten years. UK, because it's a major Western country and it's often quite backward on drugs. I mean, I'm generalising there. And Australia, because I'm from there originally and I was also frustrated how... With some exceptions, Australia was quite similar to the UK, like almost proud of its policies despite the evidence showing that they're failing continuously. So I want to give a global picture. I want to back into some of these countries and these observations by the very first sentence in your book. It's an observation about the history of U.S. drug policy. And you write, Washington has never fought a war on drugs, but it has fought multiple wars fueled by drugs. And you have um, some observations about the Nixon administration that come into sharp focus, how they used drugs to kind of disrupt constituencies that were opposed to Nixon. And then you talk about the the perspective of the Trump administration in 2018. So how would you summarize the role of the United States in the international drug trade? Central and vital, and that's mostly been a bad thing. The US's role has evolved. It's not the same as the 1970s. It's definitely changed. The US's influence, in fact, is declining. To an, I mean, I say that in a general political sense. Globally, the world's becoming much more multipolar. The role of the US, the influence of the US, while still the global superpower, and that will remain for a number of years, its power is definitely declining. And that also impacts drug policy. So whereas years ago, if any country dared tried to want to legalize marijuana or any other drugs, the US would almost threaten invasion. I mean, I'm generalizing, I'm sort of exaggerating, but there has been a sense that the US could dictate so much of global drug policy. They still do to an extent, but what, as I said in that introduction, as you read out, there's never been an intention, despite the rhetoric by consecutive presidents and countless politicians, and this is a bipartisan issue, by the way, the drug war is pushed by Republicans and Democrats. There's nuances, there's differences, sure, but in general, both major sides of politics have engaged the drug war, funded it, and supported it. And it has always been a war on the poor, The truth is in 2020, drug use and abuse has never been higher. Never. I'm interested in your observations about the shifts in rhetoric that you're noticing in the United States. And to what do you attribute this shift, even if minor? Is it is it the mass incarceration that you mentioned? That's a big factor. The truth is, as many listeners in the US, of course, will know, the US has every night roughly 2.3 million prisoners. They're not all there for drug offences, to be sure, but a lot of them are, and they're nonviolent. I think the public opinion has changed for a few reasons, briefly. One, cannabis is now being legalised. The sky hasn't fallen in. Public opinion on cannabis has radically changed. If you look at the public opinion polls 15 years ago, 10 years ago, in many, many states and federally, the majority of Americans from the left and the right opposed it. Now the majority support it. So it's inevitable. I think also what's happening is on the psychedelic drugs, ecstasy, LSD, magic mushrooms, ketamine and others. These are drugs that are currently illegal. People often use them for you know, going out at parties or clubs or festivals. That's one side of it. But the other side is a growing scientific body of work that shows undeniably that these drugs have the potential of helping people profoundly with their mental health problems. In other words, it's very conceivable that legally within the US in, say, five or so years, you would go to a doctor 
And what could happen in time with a trained therapist, not someone you don't take the drug home with you and use it in your you know, bedroom, you use it under controlled environments in a um, therapist room, you would be given a number of sessions with ecstasy or LSD. And the results don't help every single person, but anyone can Google this if they don't believe me. The results are really quite remarkable. And that's why the FDA, in fact, is moving. And the Trump administration has not really stopped that or tried to delay it. That potentially by 22, 23, these sort of things will be a reality. So it's almost happening by default. I mean, that sort of issue is happening mostly under the radar. It's getting some media, to be sure. But in general, I think America and much of the West, in fact, much of the world, is going through this major... I would call it a psychological crisis. I mean, put aside the politics for a minute, the issues around depression, loneliness, mental health problems are off the chart for a range of reasons. And people are looking for answers. Now, I'm not saying LSD is the answer to people's problems. I'm saying that LSD can be one way potentially to help a number of people to manage those issues and maybe feel better in the process. Well, as you've looked at some of these solutions and you're hearing about experimental treatment programs, have you witnessed countries successfully either decriminalized drugs and witnessed a decline in use or noticed improvement in mental or physical health? Look, Portugal is the best example. In 2001, Portugal had the highest rates of HIV in Europe. It was really a catastrophe. And the then government said, we need to do something. This is really serious. They made a decision which at the time, and even now, you know, 20 years on, is seen as Seen as radical, my view it shouldn't be, but it's certainly viewed that way. They decriminalized every drug. I'm not talking about just cannabis, everything, heroin, cocaine, etc. And now it's roughly 20 years on, and the results are very clear that drug use and abuse across all ages has gone down. Now, people still abuse drugs. People will still abuse drugs. They might get in trouble from drugs. But the amount of money that the state is saving by not spending it on law enforcement is given to education and health. And so personal possession of a any drug is not a crime. And you might get a warning, but you will not be sent to prison or charged. And that, to me, is a really logical first step that the US and states could do, and I think should, frankly. I, don't, I accept it. America's not going to legalise all drugs next week. I get that. I mean, I think America should move towards that model, but it's not going to happen overnight. You're highlighting Portugal as an example of rather a success story because they made the decision to decriminalize drugs and then shift the resources to education and health. In general, yes. And as I said, they still have police and law enforcement, of course. And because the drugs remain illegal, if, for example, you you, know, you are stopped by a policeman and with a small amount of heroin, for example, you will not be charged or criminally prosecuted, but the person who sold that drug to you can be. So that's different to a legalized system and regulated system, which is what myself and a number of other people now advocate. And it's not, to be clear, suggesting that you simply go into a shop and just buy heroin. Far from it. The severity of the drug will determine where you can buy that drug. So cannabis will be like it often will be in the US now at certain um uh, cannabis shops, heroin or cocaine could be through a pharmacist, it could be through a doctor. Um, and in fact, you know, one of the advantages of legalizing is you take the so-called sexiness out of drugs. I mean, Portugal is a good example of that where it seems clear that because drugs, all these drugs remain illegal and prohibited, there's kind of a, 
sexiness about using them or obtaining them. And the aim of legalization is to make drugs unbelievably boring and normal, not to encourage drug use, far from it. In fact, I talk in the book, right, about how drugs can be harmful. I don't deny that for a second. I acknowledge it. It can be a problem. People die. That's obvious. But the problem now is that because it's unregulated, if you take a drug, and millions and millions of people are every day, you don't know what's in it. Increasingly, for example, in the US, people are dying from cocaine laced with fentanyl. I mean, it's a disaster. And education to me should start hugely young. So you teach people what drugs are, what harms they can do, but also the benefits. And that to me would be a mature way of dealing with drugs rather than how it still is so often, which is a just say no mentality. What are the practical implications uh, for law enforcement when a shift in policy goes into effect, as in Portugal. And then I, the other part of that question is, I think there's some lack of awareness about what the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency does, both domestically and internationally. So to the extent that you can, uh, what are your observations about law enforcement and then how the U.S. DEA is handling things from their policy perspective? So if you ask a policeman or man or woman, they will give you obviously a range of answers. There's not one set view. The official view, of course, is drugs are bad, don't do them. We're going to get you if you take them or deal them. That's a very sort of blunt summary. But there's growing numbers of police departments around the US and in the UK that have sort of unofficially decriminalized. So if they stop you in the street with a small amount of drug X, you won't be prosecuted. Now, clearly there's a caveat to that, that clearly if you are a person of colour, you're more likely than not to be stopped and charged. So I'm not saying for everybody, but there has been an unofficial shift in the last years. The DEA's role, and I go into great detail in the book about this, domestically and globally, has been catastrophic. I mean, it has caused huge numbers of deaths. It has little to no impact on drug use, abuse, supply, in country after country, from Afghanistan to Colombia to Honduras. If you ask them, of course, they'll say the opposite. It's been a huge success and we've arrested lots of drug cartel leaders. They have, and they're often in jail in the US. But And to what effect? What's the impact on that? Has it seriously stopped people using or abusing drugs? Has it stopped drugs coming into the US? No. I mean, it's the opposite effect, to be honest. So I'm very critical of the role of the DEA. If I was in charge of America, I'd abandon it tomorrow. I would dismantle it and put the money somewhere else because it's criminalizing generations of people in the US and globally. And also, frankly, what right does the US have to go into countless countries around the world and meddle in their affairs and arrest people and bring them back to America, which happens over and over again? I think it's immoral and counterproductive and pointless. Right. You And you do go into this in depth and I'm very interested in your reporting from Honduras. You cite some missteps that you felt were catastrophic in Honduras at the hands of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency. I would like to know, how did you find the people that you wanted to help map out this story? And again, Honduras, I think, is really important country because it's a transit country. The headlines um, in the U.S. press tend to focus on Colombia and Mexico, at least historically. We don't hear a lot about the Honduran transit point. And when you were there reporting, how did you find your sources and how did you balance out the picture? So when I go to these kinds of places, whether the ones you mentioned or Afghanistan or I was in Nigeria last year um, for work, places that are 
more difficult to report in. You spend months preparing. You make some contacts before you get there. You find out who you think you can trust when you arrive on the ground. Of course, you never know until you 100% arrive, but you do your best to prepare rather than, you know, any good journalist will say if you visit a place like that in Honduras, is one of the most violent countries in the world outside traditional war zones. So it's not Syria or Iraq, but it's unbelievably violent. And that's not just drug violence, but it's also gang warfare. And it really does frustrate me in the US, and I cover this in the book a little bit, that in the last year since Trump came in, you do read about Honduras to the extent that a lot of refugees trying to come into the US are coming from Honduras. But too rarely do people then say, but why are they trying to come in? Like, what are they fleeing? What is the situation in Honduras? Who caused it? Why is the US backing a narco president and a narco government in Honduras? Why is that? Those questions are too rarely actually asked and doesn't say much for my colleagues often in the media. So you do spend a lot of time making preparations and obviously you make judgments about risk. Honduras felt unsafe because there's no one to really trust in law enforcement or or politicians. I mean, they're not all corrupt. So it was a really illuminating place. It was difficult to travel around. I was with a journalist who often travel with a fixer. It's a word we use to describe a local journalist. You obviously pay them. You work with them all the time. They're kind of your eyes and ears. You work on the story together. They will translate for you if required. They'll help you with transport. They watch your back. And in every place like that that I've worked in, I spent often months trying to speak to other journalists who have been to these places and asking for advice. Who would you? Who do you recommend? Who's a good fixer? Who's trusted? Now, of course, you know you can't be ever a hundred percent until you get there. But if you like a journalist's work and they recommend someone and they've worked with that person securely, then that means something. So yeah, that's kind of how you do it. You've been at this for a number of years, and what I didn't mention, but I will mention now, is that you, you've probably done some of the most extensive reporting on opioid use, and you were one of the, I think, directors of a documentary film on the, on the drug Tramadol. How might you react to these statements that the opioid crisis is a uniquely American phenomenon, or the opioid crisis primarily affects young people from broken families? Uh, well, the first comment about mainly affecting America is this not true. I mean, what is true, though, and this is undeniable, that the death rate in the US from opioid abuse is massive. I mean, America is currently experiencing its worst drug crisis in its history. That is just a statement of fact. Every year, there are tens of thousands of people who die, either from misusing opioids like oxycodone or increasingly from overdosing on something called fentanyl, which is a very, very strong drug, which can be bought often online um, from China or elsewhere. So that's true. The myth, though, that it's simply for people from broken homes, again, is not true. Um, Yes, there are people who are poor, white, African-American and Latino who are affected by opioids. Of course there are. But it can affect all people of all classes. And, of course, if you're more wealthy, you're much more likely to get access potentially to uh, addiction treatment or assistance, whereas if you're poor, you won't. And there's no doubt there are certain areas of the US that are particularly poor that are disproportionately affected by the opioid crisis. So all that's true. But what is happening in the last years, as there's a small but growing evidence that the US Justice Department and others are trying to crack down on drug companies that that have been over-prescribing these drugs for decades, these drug companies are looking further afield to new markets, talking India, 
um, Australia, New Zealand and elsewhere. And the death rates in those places, while not even close to matching the US yet, thankfully, are rising. And those countries, including, as I said, Australia, my own country, is not learning the lessons from what the US did wrong, namely much more closely regulating this problem. And although there's been a slight shift in the US, I mean, you read in the press quite a lot, some big drug company families are being prosecuted. That's true. But this issue really is in some ways obviously about drugs, but it's also about policy and social realities and the economy and they're complex, right? They're not simply about people have a problem in life and they take opioids and they die. People can overdose, of course, but people take drugs for a range of reasons. Sometimes they're good reasons. They want to reduce the pain they might feel um, in their back or they might want to reduce mental pain. I've got no problem with that. But of course, often it can lead to abuse if it's excessively taken. The picture around the world is different to the US, but the US sadly is increasingly exporting its own problems to more vulnerable and frankly naive states, including Western nations around the world. If you had to summarize your hope for this book and who might read it and what, what is your end goal? Do you want to see this book as used in policy formulations, policy discussions? I would love the book to be used at universities. I would love it to be discussed in the halls of power, Democrat, Republican, whatever, to be used as a tool almost to educate people that the drug war is not coming to an end. As I said, it's actually in some ways worsening to be a, a guide, I guess, of sorts to the dangers of continuing the status quo, both in the US and globally, because of the damage, because of the harm, both psychologically, physically, emotionally, and to also make people maybe more aware of the realities of what the war on drugs means. I mean, the drug war globally is a roughly half a trillion dollar US industry a year. That's illegal drugs. I'm not even talking about opioids. That's illegal drugs. It is massive and growing and that it could be different, that a legalised, regulated system is possible. It feels like a long way away now. I understand that. But it's possible. And there, Whereas th- this argument 10, 20 years ago was seen as crazy on the fringes, now it's less so. Sure, you don't have Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, for example, talking about legalising all drugs, although this election cycle in the US... Tulsi Gabbard, who won't be the candidate for Democrats, I know that, she calls for legalising all drugs and regulating them, which is pretty amazing because that position was never been articulated by a um, leading Democratic candidate years ago. And as I said, other candidates in the US are talking about these kind of policies. So if I can be a part of that conversation to be a strong voice amongst others, then I'll be pleased and the book will have succeeded, but also around the world as well, not just the US. And it's doing getting good traction in other countries around the world where the drug war is different but still often very devastating. I think what's remarkable about your book is that you present a global perspective and you're very clear that policy will not change overnight or in a year, but you have observed changes in rhetoric. You mentioned that in the book and you're and you're seeing it real time in the U.S. presidential election. And I guess that gets me to kind of one of my final questions this has become a real kind of passion project for you. Is the drug trade something that you're going to continue to report on or what is next for you? 
So the short answer is yes, <laughs> I am going to. I don't think I'm going to write another book about it anytime soon, but I'm trying to get a film project up. I can't go into much detail about it, but it does partly involve the issue of drugs. Um, a documentary about how this issue is shifting in terms of public opinion. In terms of what I'm doing next, I guess my work over the last 15 years is to really cover a range of issues, to not be pigeonholed. The, the, I guess the through line of everything is a strong belief in human rights to, I mean, journalists sort of use this term, a voice for the voiceless, and they kind of, it's cliched and ridiculous, although there's elements of truth in it to an extent. And also I think a sense that, Although I'm deeply critical of journalism and the media and often in my books and elsewhere, I'm not a big fan of my profession. I often think most journalists are complicit in these problems, not just in drugs in general. Most journalists, despite saying that they're outsiders, actually want to be insiders. They want to be close to power. And that's never what I've wanted to do. So the kind of work I've done, whether it's in Israel, Palestine or Afghanistan, or has been to... I guess try to show people that there's good journalism out there and, of course, other people do good work as well. I'm not saying it's just me. There are very good journalists out there, but a lot of journalism out there is terrible and unaccountable and I think is causing a lot of the problems we're seeing now in the US along around Trump and the growth of quite ugly populism and that I want to keep doing that work that often can feel, I can assure you, quite overwhelming. You know, I do a book on my drug war. A drug war is not going to end anytime soon and there's going to be still a lot of carnage because of it and that's upsetting and frustrating and often you do feel like you're a voice in the wilderness but I guess what's the alternative pack up and go home I'm not going to, I'm not willing to do that so you got to fight on it's a huge topic um, you have clearly not shied away from controversial issues and I will just mention that uh, a line in the book that really struck me something you wrote it said what a legal and regulated drug market would look like is one of the great questions of our age because no country has ever tried it but what you've done is laid out an explanation a history and some experiments in countries where we might look to for at least some preliminary guidance so it's, it's a book that I encourage everybody to pick up if you're interested in the drug war, where we are, where we might be going. And Anthony, where can readers find more about you? So I'm on all the social medias. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, my website's just myname.com, so anthonylowenstein.com. If you Google me, you'll find a lot of my articles, details, bio, Wikipedia page, so easy to find. The book is Pills, Powder, and Smoke. It was recently published in the U.S. by Scribe Press. Anthony, thank you so much for joining the program today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. You've been listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. All episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.